Blog Talk Radio. Anxiety-free living is part of what the Lord offers. It's part of the gospel message. It is what we have who are in the kingdom, if we want to take it. Welcome to Grace to You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. Maybe today you're struggling with sickness or job loss or you're watching a loved one battle cancer. In circumstances like those, worry can move in. The danger is worry can quickly control you if left unchecked. How do you keep that from happening? Get biblical strategies today as John begins a study that can help you experience anxiety-free living. 
That's the title of our series. Now, John, you're about to touch on a problem every one of us has faced at one time or another. So to set the stage, talk for a minute about emotions, emotions such as fear and anxiety and how objective truth factors into the equation. In truth, some fear and anxiety is justified. If you've done something wrong and you're afraid to be caught, that's sensible fear. If you're a hypocrite and you're hiding some secret shame, that's a sensible anxiety. So fear and anxiety, God will activate if there's something wrong in your life, something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be confessed. But if you're just looking at life in its normal course, there is no reason for fear and anxiety if you are a child of God. Because even the difficulties are working together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. As a believer, you do not need to be a victim of circumstances. Again, let me say this. It's legitimate to have fear and anxiety if there's sin and shame in your life. But in terms of looking at life and seeing all that could go wrong and all the troubles and struggles of life, There is no reason to be anxious about that. That's why the Bible says be anxious for nothing, because God is in control of absolutely every detail. We're going to have four wonderful days of study in Luke 12, and we're going to be talking about anxiety-free living. I want this series to show you God's love, show you his provision, show you his power and his purpose in such a way that you do not have to be anxious. You're going to be armed with encouraging truth that will still your own troubled soul, and you can share it with someone else as well. Stay with us. Right, friend. Whether you're struggling with financial pressure or health issues or strained relationships, you can face all of life's circumstances free from fear and worry. John's study on anxiety-free living will show you how. And so with today's lesson, here again is John MacArthur. We're going to look now at Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. Luke 12, 22 to 34. The key to understanding the passage before us, which you will find familiar to you, things like be not anxious for your life, consider the ravens, consider the lilies, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Those are familiar things. But as we pull the passage together... The thing that ties it all up is a statement that Jesus makes three times, essentially. Verse 22, do not be anxious. And then verse 29, do not keep worrying. And then verse 32, do not be afraid. And so I've entitled this passage, Worry-Free Living or Anxiety-Free Living or stress-free living. The Lord Jesus in Scripture at least 12 times is recorded to have said, don't worry, don't be anxious. And He explained why on the occasions in which He said that. On a number of times He said, "Uh, don't be afraid, and explained why. Anxiety-free living is part of what the Lord offers. It's part of the gospel message. It is what we have. 
who are in the kingdom if we want to take it. I understand why the, why the world is stressed out. I understand why people are anxious. I understand why they worry. I understand why they have panic attacks. It's frightening to be dangling in this inexplicable universe and feeling all alone and not being able to figure out why you're even here and where you're going. I understand there's a certain cosmic fear. I understand why people take drugs and drink and go on eat, eating binges and shopping binges and wild adventures and all kinds of things to uh, fill their minds with uh, other thoughts. We are living in an anxiety-ridden culture. And the amazing thing about it is this is the most indulged, the most lavish society ever. This is the most comfortable society ever. This is the society that has the most, but it seems to be the most angst-ridden, anxious, stressed-out, panicked culture ever. The goal in the society we live in is managed anxiety. How to somehow get rid of the panic, the stress, the anxiousness that you feel because you are dangling in the midst of a cosmic universe that's inexplicable to you and there are inordinate and underlying subliminal fears and anxieties that rise to the surface very often. And it gets to be pretty serious with many people. About 20 million in America, 20 million adults, are annual subjects of the mental illness world about $42 billion a year in government costs. They come with anxiety disorders that are given names even though they are often uh, engaged in what's called comorbidity, which means they overlap and intermingle. It's not as if you just have sort of one area of anxiety. This is huge. And of course the medical business is huge to deal with it or to attempt to manage it. And uh, the, the drug companies, of course, are the main player in how that is managed. According to Ohio State University, the goal of any treatment is to make anxiety a manageable part of daily existence. The best the world can offer you is to manage your anxiety. Jesus offers you to eliminate it. That sound like a good deal? Get rid of it altogether? Now there are only two realms in which you can worry. You can worry about the physical world or you can worry about the spiritual world. You can worry about what is immaterial or what is material. You can worry about what is earthly or what is heavenly. And so that is precisely what Jesus says you don't need to worry about. In verse 22 He says, don't be anxious for your life. And by that He means what you eat and your body, what you wear. Stop worrying about that, the basics of life. And then down in verse 32. Don't be afraid on the spiritual level, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You're left with nothing to worry about, nothing to be anxious about, nothing to be stressed about, nothing to panic over. So we conclude that if you do worry as a Christian, worry is a sin. But it's a sin that rises from a failure to understand God. A failure to understand His sovereign love, a failure to understand His sovereign care, a failure to understand His sovereign resources. So that's what Jesus unfolds here. Jesus does offer anxiety-free living. When you come into His kingdom, God takes care of you and your worries really are ended. So that what defined your life, worrying about everything, is eliminated. Now you have to understand the promises of God. And you have to understand the purposes of God to come to this 
worry-free, anxiety-free living. So let me help you with that. In these verses, as they unfold down all the way to verse 34, there are several points that I want to unpack for you, six of them. And they show that worry rises from a failure to understand something about God. First of all, let's look at the first one. Worry is a failure to understand divine priority. Worry is a failure to understand divine priority. Let's go back to verse 22. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food and the body than clothing. It's not hard to understand, and yet there's some things below the surface there that I think we're gonna, are going to open up a deeper understanding of this. First of all, he said to his disciples, remember now, he's talking to the disciples, which would include the apostles, as we note in verse 41 when Peter says, are you addressing this parable to us or everyone else as well? I mean, the apostles were learners, but not just the apostles. There were others who had believed in Him, and there were other learners, which is the word disciple, mathetes, who were still trying to decide. He's talking to those who have decided or are trying to decide, and He's explaining to them what life in the kingdom is. The crowd is in the tens of thousands, and mingled in that crowd are those who are still open to His teaching, while the majority of the crowd are hostile toward Him. But to those who were still interested, He defines the kingdom. And He says to His disciples, picking up after the interruption, remember in verse 13, a, a man interrupted Him uh, by uh, telling Him He ought to say to His brother, give me my share of the inheritance. And Jesus gave the wonderful parable of the rich man who built bigger barns to keep everything for Himself. And the Lord said, tonight your life will be required of you. And then Jesus said, you know, you, you should lay up treasure in heaven, you should be rich toward God and, and not selfish. And that's how that story ended in verse 21. After answering that young man's plea with that parable, he resumes his teaching, but he connects the two together, as verse 22 says, for this reason I say to you. What reason? The reason that I've just stated, verse 21, you make a choice in life as to whether you lay up treasure for yourself or are rich toward God, which is just another way to say lay up treasure in heaven. And that's how he said it in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. So you make a choice. Either you are selfish and materialistic and keep everything, or you lay up treasure in heaven. That's the choice you have to make. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other, you will hold the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And the picture of slavery made that pretty clear. Being a slave was not like being an employee. You didn't go to work at 8 and finish at 5. You can do that in our society. And then you can go to work somewhere else at 7 and finish at 2 in the morning. You can serve two masters in our culture. You can have two jobs. But you couldn't in a slave environment because you were owned by the master. And there was no way a slave could serve two masters. It's impossible. He would hate someone else giving him orders than the one that he belonged to. He would despise an effort on the part of someone who didn't own him and support him and feed him, commanding him to do things. It was impossible. And so in the spiritual realm, you either serve God or money, you're either rich toward God or you indulge yourself, and that's the point he makes. Now, I, he says, for this reason, I have something to say to you. That's the transition. Because here's what they would be thinking. 
the question would come to their minds. They're sitting there thinking, well, Jesus is saying we ought to be rich toward God and not save money and build bigger barns and store up money and make ourselves wealthy and, and all of that and ignore the poor and ignore the needy and ignore the purposes of God. But if we give it all to God, what about us? What's going to happen to us? Who's going to take care of us? I mean, we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, right? Who's going to take care of us if we don't take care of ourselves? If I don't build bigger barns, if I don't take care of myself, if I don't stockpile, who is going to take care of me? I don't want to depend on somebody else. I don't want to depend on somebody's perhaps transient compassion. Well, the answer, of course, that the Lord gives here is this, that uh, God's going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. God is the one who feeds the birds. God is the one who arrays the grass in the field. God is the one who knows what you need. God is the one who will give you the kingdom. You just came under the care of God. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on Him, He cares for you. So if He asks you to give up everything, like you did the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give your money to the poor. Oh, not on your life, He said. Turned around and walked away. For he was very rich. And he wanted his money. And he didn't want to give it away and depend on God. But on the other hand, Jesus said, if you want to come after me, Luke 9, 23, you have to deny yourself. You have to lose your life. In other words, uh, salvation is for people who are desperate enough to say, look, I don't, I don't care what it costs me. If you want everything I have, I'll give it. If you want nothing, that's fine too. Whatever it is, I'll give it. And even if you don't ask, like Zacchaeus in chapter 19, the Lord uh, gives the gospel to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back everybody I ever extorted anything from in multiples. This came out of his heart. If you respond to the truth and you come into the kingdom, then you become his to care for. And uh, in the words of the apostle Paul, he said this, chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 11, I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering. What's the secret? Trusting God. Sometimes you have a lot. Sometimes you have a little. But you always have enough. Why? Verse 19, my God shall supply all your what? Needs. Do you trust God to that point? You come into His kingdom and you can trust Him to meet your needs. Now, this is an issue of divine priority. Let's go back to the text and I'll show you how this works. Do not be anxious for your life. Now, what do you mean by life? Your physical life. He explains it, meaning what you eat. Don't be anxious about your body, what you're going to wear. Now, this deeply concerned people in Jesus' day. I mean, they basically live to survive. There were no fast food places, no uh, stores to go buy the endless elements of clothing that are available to us. If you wanted to eat, you had to, you had to grind it out yourself and cook it yourself and do all the preparation. And if you wanted clothing, you went somewhere and you bought thread and you made it on a loom and you made the fabric or you bought the fabric and you made the garment. And, and if you were poor, you had a real struggle for your food and struggle for your clothing. And I mean... First Timothy 6, 8 says, with food and covering, be content. 
And that was what life was about. It was about getting enough meals each day to survive and the clothes you needed to stay warm and to be protected from the blazing heat of the Middle Eastern sun. But he says, look, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat to support your life. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to put on. Verse 23, for life is more than food and the body than clothing. Here's another way to say that. You exist for a higher reason, okay? You exist for a higher reason. Life is more than food, and you have a body for more reasons than just clothing. In other words, God didn't make you so that you could be like an animal. You're not just an eating machine. You're not just the ultimate end of the food chain. You're not the final product of evolution. I'm not here just to exist. It's in God that I live and move and have my being. But God has a purpose for my life. I'm under divine priority. The simple idea is this, folks. Get it. For those who are in the kingdom, if God gave you life, and He did, if He wants you to live, and He does if you're alive, if He brought you into His kingdom, and He has, then He has a purpose for you to fulfill in His kingdom to His glory, and so He will sustain you to that fulfillment. Okay? I mean, it wouldn't make any sense for God to say, I will save you, and I will give you eternal life, I'll give you spiritual life, and I have a, a purpose for your life, and a destiny, and a plan, and a purpose, and I've gifted you, and I've called you, and I've laid out circumstances, and man, if you can just keep yourself alive to fill this deal out, this will be really good. No. In all honesty, the people who are not in God's family come and go and live and die with no contribution to the divine kingdom. But those of us who are His are fulfilling divine purpose. And that's why you can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? What? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death and out the other side. The earth is the Lord and all that is in it, psalmist says. So if God gave you life and He did, if God redeemed you and He did, if God has a purpose for your life and He does, then He will provide what you need to survive. So be rich toward God and uh, you will have the promise that as you're rich toward God, He'll be lavishly rich toward you. As long as He has that unfolding plan in your life, He will sustain it. We have a life, we have a body for the purposes of God. To live to His glory, to fulfill His will, to fulfill His plan. And as long as that plan is operating, He will sustain us. You don't have to build bigger, 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 bigger barns to take care of yourself, to protect yourself. Be wise, be faithful. Don't be foolish. Be a good steward. Do some planning for the future. But you're not the one who has obligated himself to your care. God has. No need to hoard so that you can survive in the future. You will be sustained by the Creator until His purpose for your life ends. He'll feed you till the very, very end. 
you could divest yourself of everything, everything you have. That wouldn't change God's commitment to sustain you until it's your time to enter into His heaven. So you have to understand the priority, right? And the priority is spiritual purpose. If you understand that, if you understand God's gifted you, He's called you, He's regenerated you, He's put you into His family, He's put you into a place of witness and ministry and service, and all He wants you to do is live to His glory, then He will take care of your life. Your life is not about food. Your life is not about clothing. It's not about making sure you can survive. That's God's commitment. That's the priority. You're listening to John MacArthur here on Grace to You Weekend and his study, Anxiety-Free Living. This series is designed to show you how faith in Christ produces genuine freedom from worry and fear, no matter your circumstances. And friend, to help you really dig deep into biblical truths that will show you how to deal with worry, John has written a book called Anxious for Nothing. It looks at how to attack stress at its roots and to fully trust our all-powerful, all-loving Creator. To pick up Anxious for Nothing, contact us today. Call our toll-free number, 800-55-GRACE, or go to our website, gty.org. When tragedy hits, when you're tempted to worry about relationships, health, finances, or what the future holds, Anxious for Nothing can help you find profound strength. To order a copy, call 800-55-GRACE or go to gty.org. And while you're online, download any of John's 3,500 sermons, including every message from his current study called Anxiety-Free Living. You can get the audio or transcripts of John's sermons. It's all free. Our website also has a blog where John and fellow Grace to You staff members cover issues that affect churches today, perhaps even your church. Or you can download the Grace to You app for access to all of John's sermons wherever you take your tablet or your phone. Those resources and many others are free and available right now at gty.org. Now for John MacArthur, I'm Phil Johnson, encouraging you to be here when John looks at how Christ transformed 12 ordinary men into his disciples and how he can transform you. John begins one of his best-known series, The Master's Men, with another half hour of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on the next Grace To You Weekend. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. 
If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. A low view of scripture. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Many Christians today hold to a view called evolutionary creation. Basically, they believe in millions of years of evolution, but say God directed the process. But ultimately, this belief shows a low view of scripture. You see, if you read Genesis, you won't find a hint of millions of years or evolution in the text itself. Instead, you read about God speaking and bringing everything into existence from nothing over six days. No evolution, just God's incredible power. To believe in millions of years of evolution, Christians must add these ideas into the Bible. And that makes man the authority, not God. Discover more about God's Word, the truth of Genesis, creation, and more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or many others like it at AnswersRadio.com.
Death Before Sin? This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. There are many Christians who have adopted the idea of evolutionary creation. Really, this just means they believe God created using the process of evolution. But there's a big problem with this thinking. You see, Genesis tells us God's original creation was very good, free from death and suffering. And yet evolution requires millions of years of death and disease to work. So how could God use a process of death to create in a world that was very good? It simply doesn't match with what the scripture teaches. Also, if God had to use millions of years of death to create, that makes him out to be an incompetent creator, not the all-powerful God of the Bible. Discover more about Genesis and the truth of God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken at AnswersRadio.com. Please. 
How did it happen? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Apologetics Ministry behind the popular Answers Bible Curriculum. In Genesis, God tells us what he created on each day of the creation week. Now, some Christians argue that God used evolution to create, but the supposed order of the events in the evolutionary story doesn't match the order in the Bible. For example, Genesis describes Earth as being created covered in water, but evolution has Earth originally as a hot molten blob. Genesis says God created Earth and then the sun and stars. Evolution, though, has the sun and stars formed and then the Earth formed. Genesis says plants were created before the sun. Evolution has it the other way around. And they're just a few of the differences in the order. God didn't use evolution. There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. We kick it old school.
old school. Was Jesus wrong? This is Ken Ham, author of the new family commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel. This week we've seen that the Bible does not allow for the idea that God used evolution over millions of years to create. It just doesn't match what Genesis teaches. And it also contradicts Jesus' teaching. Whenever Jesus referred to people or events from Genesis, he always treated them as real history. And when Jesus was asked about marriage, he said, from the beginning of creation, God created the male and female. Jesus didn't believe people arrived billions of years after the beginning. He taught they were there from the beginning. That means the earth can't be millions of years old and God didn't use evolution. Well, Jesus would know. He's the creator. You'll find more answers to your questions when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, he made us all, yo. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. So we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. Joy. 
different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All the great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cross God made me and you Different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display God made me and you For all the value, all our loss All the great need for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cross Genesis and the Gospel? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. The idea of millions of years in evolution is ultimately an attack on the Gospel. Now what do I mean? Well the Gospel is grounded in Genesis. Sadly many of those who teach Christians to believe evolution in millions of years don't have a good understanding of the Gospel. Why? Because they can't. You see, if there wasn't really a historical Adam, then there wasn't really a first sin, one that brought death. That's why so many theistic evolutionists believe sin was some kind of evolutionary progression that spread through humanity. It's because there really was a literal first Adam who sinned and brought death that we need the last Adam, Jesus. By his death, he brings life. Find resources for the whole family to encourage and equip you in your faith when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Base Boomer says, is praying the gay away wrong? Here's my, my thought. Biblically, we're to stop sinning. Okay, but biblically, we're not called to be, stop being tempted. Do you still have the flesh with you as a Christian? Is there any point where the flesh is not with you as a Christian? No, it's still there. So if I tell somebody of a specific sin, pray it away, I'm not being honest about the biblical teaching about the flesh and the spirit. So all we're called to do is not walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. So don't pray the gay away. No, instead conduct your behavior in godly ways. That's the call. Don't give your mind over to it. That's when it becomes fantasizing. Don't walk in the flesh physically either and engage in the physical behaviors. Walk in the spirit instead. Base boomers. You're not going to lie what you're about fear. You know you're saved because the spirit bears witness that you are born again. Because your life has changed and is changing and continues in a process of change. And when it stalls in that process of change, that merciful, loving God comes and disciplines you. You see why there's no power in that thing they call the gospel? The good news is not that God will forgive you. The good news is he has already forgiven you. Let the church do its work. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is getting ready to blow your mind what he does with what you've got. Your talent, your skill, your ability, your ministry, your preaching, your anointing, your gift. God's going to use what's in your mind. Because it's not the gospel that they're preaching. It's not. And I'll take any man to task who says it is. It's not. Jabez is a best-selling book based on a very short story in 1 Chronicles 4, 9-10. There we read of a man named Jabez who cried out to the God of Israel saying, 
Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from the evil one. And God granted his request. Bruce Wilkinson said to pray this prayer every day. I challenge you to make the Jabez prayer for blessing part of the daily fabric of your life. You'll notice significant changes, and this prayer will be on its way to becoming a treasured lifelong habit. There's nothing wrong with asking God for blessing, but fans of this book acted like Wilkinson deciphered some long-lost spell that we can use to charm God into giving us what we want. Wilkinson said God always answers this prayer. This is prosperity theology nonsense. There is no gospel in this book. We enter into God's presence only by the atoning blood of Christ, who intercedes for us before the Father. God never promises us earthly blessing. The Apostle Paul was tormented by a messenger of Satan, and he prayed three times that it would leave him. But Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you. Oh, if only Paul had known the prayer of Jabez. While we are not promised earthly blessing, in Christ we are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places when we understand the text. I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. Yes, I am a man, and I'm going to talk to women about abortions. And if you argue that a male has no right to discuss a subject we know nothing about, I would argue there are four reasons I would plead with you to hear me out. Number one, truth does not have a gender. Something is either true or false, no matter who says it. Number two, if men can now have babies, I do actually have the right to speak on this subject. Three, what you're about to hear is not my opinion. And four, what you are going to hear might liberate you from the prison that you've been in since you had an abortion. If you have, perhaps you've been told you need to shout about it. Not in anger, but in triumphant celebration that you are an empowered woman who has bodily autonomy. There are dozens of celebrities who have gone public to shout their abortions. I knew at the time I was not equipped to be a mother, and so I chose to have an abortion. If I had not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac. I was worried about my career responsibilities and afraid that I could not exist as both a career woman and a mother. I'm grateful that I came to my senses and was able to get an abortion legally without risking my health or bankrupting myself or my family. Perhaps you, too, will want to shout about your abortion, but not because you're happy you had one, but because you're racked with a sense of guilt, shame, maybe even fear. God's word, not mine, has something life-changing to say to you. The Bible declares that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and there are no exceptions to that rule. 1 Corinthians 6, it offers a laundry list of really horrible sins ranging from the sexually immoral to thieves and swindlers. And then Paul announces, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No matter what sin you have committed, you are not beyond God's grace. Remember, Paul was a murderer who called himself the chief of sinners, but he was shown mercy. And if you are like Paul, please listen to these words and believe that this mercy is actually a 
available to you too. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And then he praises God to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you have had an abortion and you're a professing Christian, you need to know that you are just as forgiven as Paul. You're not a second-class believer struggling to rejoice because your sin is whispering in your ear that you couldn't possibly be a Christian if you had an abortion. That is a lie. There is no sin too great for Jesus to forgive. He cleanses the repentant believer from all unrighteousness. And if you are not a Christian because you believe there is no way that Jesus could forgive you because of what you've done, then hear his words. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light right now. This second, Jesus extends his offer of full pardon to you, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done. May I ask, what is not to love about a Savior like that? Repent. Put your trust in Jesus, the merciful Savior, and then shout that you have been forgiven for your abortion. The Disney version of marriage is marriage is about pleasing me, about making me happy, and about making me fulfilled by taking this other puzzle piece, this other person, and I plug them into me, and then I am fulfilled now. There are elements of truth in that, but it's too much self. The Disney version of marriage, they tout love as my incredible feelings and sensations and the fulfillment I get from them when I get to have that person who I love. Whereas in Scripture, the emphasis in love is this idea of giving self-sacrificially to others. Love is pointed outward, not inward. Love isn't feelings I get that I want to satisfy. Love is actions I take to bless and help others for their sakes. The Disney version of... On the Mount Rushmore of prosperity hacks, you've got yourself Benny Hinn, Ken Copeland, T.D. Jakes, and of course... Reflo Dollar. Money coming to me. What you talking about? Last name Dollar. I better have some cheese. Every Christian ought to speak in tongues. I don't know about that. Creflo Dollar asking his members for six, five million dollars. I ain't never asked you for a dime. Your bills are paid. There is some good news. Creflo is recanting. <laughs> what did you just say? Please note I didn't say repenting. He's recanting his decades-long money laundering scheme called the Prosperity Gospel. According to 2 Corinthians 9, 7, 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, look what he says here. He says, you must each decide in your, in your own heart how much to give. 
New Testament, you must decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or don't give in response to pressure. You can't fool God. Yeah, cheat God. He knows who you are. This hurts, but I actually agree with Creflo Dollar. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 make it abundantly clear New Testament giving is not based on percentages but the heart. And that was true in the Old Testament. You paid your 23 and a third percent tithe for the running of the nation of Israel, for temple services, for the support of the priests, for taking care of the poor. Then you gave from the heart. That has always been God's design for giving. Giving should be given with pure motives. It should be given with an attitude of worship to God, and it should be given as a service to the body of Christ. Like a blind knife that finds a squirrel in the shed twice a day. Creflo Ouch actually nailed biblical giving, but that's not to suggest that he's repented. I don't know how Creflo missed Second Corinthians 7 on his way to chapters 8 and 9, but chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 identify seven genuine signs of repentance. So let's see if Creflo's tune change actually qualifies as repentance. In verse 10, Paul identifies two types of repentance. The first is a Judas or Esau type of repentance. <laughs> I sinned and I got busted and I don't want to go to jail. The second type of repentance is a godly David-like sorrow that exclaims against you and you only have I sinned. Now verse 11 unpacks the seven components that are always, and I mean always, included in godly sorrow. Number one, earnestness. A sense of, whoa, I've blown it, and I'm going to get serious about not sinning. I won't apologize, because if it wasn't for me going down that route, I would have never ended up where I am right now. Does that sound like a man who is earnest? Number two, vindication of yourselves. It's an intense desire to make sure everyone knows I acknowledge how awful my sin is. The teachings that I've shared in times past on the subject of tithing were not correct. Creflo is acknowledging he's been teaching falsely for years, but he never comes remotely close to expressing the exceeding sinfulness of his sin. Remember, this man has bilked people out of hundreds of millions of dollars so that he could live a lavish lifestyle. You are not listening to somebody that's broke! Number three, sign of genuine biblical repentance, indignation, a full-throated expression of the displeasure we feel that we've brought reproach upon God's name and Paul. I could only teach at the time what I knew. No displeasure there. This is a man who preyed on vulnerable, sick, dying people who trusted him, and Creflo doesn't seem to feel that burden at all. Number four, sign of genuine repentance. It involves a reverential fear of the holy God of the universe. I apologize if you hate the prosperity gospel. If Creflo had repented and feared God, you would see a totally broken man who is shocked the Lord hasn't taken his life for making merchandise out of people. If Creflo feared God, he'd resign immediately and submit himself to biblical discipline. That doesn't appear to be happening. A number five sign of repentance, godly sorrow produces a longing to make things right toward those
hasn't yet made things right. He continues to fly in private jets, live in a luxurious, albeit rather kitschy mansion, and drive around in a Rolls Royce. So until Creflo Dollar acts like Zacchaeus with a desire to restore what he has stolen, he's not a repentant man. Number six, zeal. A newly discovered hatred for the sinful things I once cherished for so long in church. We have gotten a flawed understanding of giving because we were taught to give the tithe, which is a uh, law-based way of giving. And so we were afraid to tell people that because we didn't know what else to tell people that because we didn't do a good job of searching out what and how you should give under the grace of God. If Kreplo had actually repented, he wouldn't be talking about his past teaching like it was merely a road to self-discovery. He'd call his former tithing teaching a doctrine from the pit. Number seven sign of genuine repentance, punishment of wrongs. A truly repentant believer makes absolutely zero effort to defend one's actions and is willing to receive the consequences for sinning. I won't apologize. Am I hopeful that Creflo is moving in the right direction? No, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and yes, no, because Creflo started teaching his newfound understanding of tithing months ago. I've been believing this for a long time. I'm just trying to figure out how to tell y'all. He's yet to demonstrate genuine biblical repentance until he acts like Zacchaeus, He's still a false teacher, but on the other hand, I do want to remain hopeful that it's maybe a first step toward repentance, because if Creflo Dollar doesn't genuinely, biblically repent, Creflo is living his best life now for a season, but that's coming to an end soon, and an unrepentant, unbelieving Creflo Dollar will hear the awesome words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. If you happen to be sitting under the teaching of Creflo Dollar or any teacher who encourages you to give to get, that God's giving system is quid pro quo. You give him 10 bucks, he'll give you 100 in return. God is not a cosmic vending machine. And I'd encourage you to find a Bible-based church. Visit the link that we've provided below and get yourself underneath Bible teaching that will encourage you to give because you've already been given. We give as an act of worship because we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And I'm afraid Creflo Dollar has not changed his tune. He's merely tweaking his tactic. Instead of telling you to give 10% to get blessed by God, now he's teaching, well, give whatever you want to, maybe more than 10%, then God will be able to bless you. Throughout the entire year of 2020, I never one time mentioned tithing. And we talked about giving out of your heart, giving out of worship, giving out of your heart. And the people I've talked to have prospered, and this ministry has prospered like I have never seen it before. Could it be that once we got out from under the law and got involved in grace-based giving, that God was able to now allow us to walk in the blessing by faith? If you're sitting underneath anybody who teaches like that, please look for the exit sign. 
run for the doors, visit the link below, and find yourself a Bible-based church. You will be glad that you did. And if you want to go deeper into discerning who is and isn't a false teacher, we do have a resource. It's called Drive-By False Teaching. It is excellent. It tackles subjects like the five ancient heresies we continue to see regurgitated today, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, Church of Christ. It is an outstanding resource, and it is available at wretched.org at the link below. Let this The link they're talking about before is uh, founders.org slash church dash search. And the other one is wretched.org slash false teaching to get the uh, lesson they're talking about. Bro is dead. You probably didn't know that the Constitution actually protects a parent's right to beat their own children as long as it's done in the privacy of their own home. Furthermore, you probably didn't know that the Constitution actually enslaves people when it has laws prohibiting certain behaviors. And you probably didn't know that the Constitution actually protects you from being arrested or detained because you have the right to do anything you want to do with your own body. The reason you probably didn't know those things is because those things are ridiculous and they are not rights that are enshrined in the Constitution. But that didn't stop the New York Times from writing, no, Justice Alito, reproductive justice is in the Constitution writing. Mandated forced or compulsory pregnancy contravenes enumerated rights in the Constitution, namely the 13th Amendment's prohibition against involuntary servitude and protection of bodily autonomy, as well as the 14th Amendment's defense of privacy and freedom. I have seen steak come out less butchered than what the New York Times just did to the United States Constitution. Apparently, the education system is now allowing our journalists to sleep through fifth-grade history class. So let's take a look at what the 13th and 14th Amendments actually have to say about enslavement, bodily autonomy, and privacy to see if a woman does have a right to an abortion. The 13th Amendment reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The New York Times interpret that to say, if the government doesn't allow me to abort my child, the government is thereby indenturing me to slavery and not allowing me to do with my body whatever I choose. Do you hear that? It's the sound of the Founding Fathers spinning in their grave like a lathe. Imagine, Nancy Pelosi gets pulled over for doing 150 in a hospital zone, and she tells the officer, you cannot prohibit me from using my body to go as fast as I want. Your laws are making me a slave. The officer wouldn't buy her argument, and Nancy would go to jail. Finally, let's move on to the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges 
or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Did you notice what word wasn't in that sentence? That's right, privacy. While the Fourth Amendment guarantees a right to privacy regarding unreasonable searches and seizures, you'll notice the 14th Amendment doesn't actually even use the word privacy. But some Supreme Court justices believe it is inferred, but not explicitly stated that what happens behind closed doors is private. But is that true? Let's imagine a neighbor called the police on the Obamas because they heard children screaming in the Obama home when the police knock on the door and ask, hey, what's happening? Michelle responds, what happens in the privacy of our own home is our business. We can beat our children if we want. Ridiculous, right? You're crazy. Of course it is. That's why the pro-choice arguments of bodily autonomy, enslavement, privacy do not provide a government sanction for terminating the lives of the most vulnerable humans among us. And to read those rights into the Constitution is an egregious violation of Jesus, akin to saying a person can kill their toddler with rat poison because... The box said it kills pests. Hey, wait a second. That is their argument. There are thousands of our brothers and sisters in the Philippines in Bible-teaching churches that are praying for their own Bible. Would you please bring joy to someone who cannot afford a Bible by sending not just any Bible, but a MacArthur Study Bible with the Master's Academy International? Imagine the impact and the joy it will bring. Please send as many Bibles as you can. Wretched.org slash Bible. Wretched.org slash Bible. Find out more about that at Wretched.org slash Bible. Wretched.org slash Bible. And their radio show and TV show is Wretched as Wretched.org wretched.org and also on YouTube you see clips as wretched w-r-e-t-c-h-e-d wretched and thanks for listening tributorial now here's some for you Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. In 
in the story of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Truth Be Told Radio goes out with Yanti and Friend and the B.I.B.O.E. Bye for now.